to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster planning, emergency response, crisis management, and anything that can be related to those fields. I'd like to remind everybody that uh, I'll be in uh, Phoenix for the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, September 23rd to 26th, and this show will actually be doing some live uh, coverage on the Monday, the September 24th. So uh, if you're out there, please stop by and maybe we can get your comments on the air. And I'll also be in Manila, Philippines in November 13th to 16th this year for the 25th anniversary of the International Emergency Management Society Conference. And uh, talking to a lot of researchers and academics and uh, hopefully people from uh, around the globe about emergency management. And I'm really looking forward to that one. And, of course, if there's any topics you want uh, us, uh, the show, to address or have specific guests on uh, to talk about something that you find interesting or you have questions about, please feel free. Go to the Voice America page for Preparing for the Unexpected. There's a button on the web page for the show that says you, know, you can send uh, the host a message. I do get all messages. I do respond to all messages. So please feel free let me know uh, what you want us to talk about, or we'll see about getting you on the show to come talk about your subject. Uh, as many listeners know, I was attending the conference, or did attend the conference, sorry, at the uh, in Toronto, the Con- Continuity and Resilience Today conference. Uh, very successful. I had a lot of fun there. met a lot of new people. And I'm speaking with many of the uh, presenters at the show, and today is no different. Today, my guest is uh, someone whose topic was uh, BCM program trends, what the most successful programs are doing right. And uh, many people that are listening may know the name of my guest. Um, I I first met our guest many years ago at a Continuity Insights Conference. um, And every, I guess it's five years or so, our paths cross. And uh, I was lucky enough to share the closing panel uh, discussion um, with my guest. And I'd like to welcome to the show, Cheyenne Marling. Cheyenne, welcome. Thank you. Uh, It's quite an honor to have you on the show. I know uh, a a lot of people uh, know you in the industry. You know, you have quite the the name. So I'm, I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Uh, can you take a, a couple of minutes to kind of introduce yourself for anybody who may not be familiar with, uh, you know, what you do and, and, and um, you know, your history, like, like a, a little bio uh, so we can become familiar with you? Sure, of course. Well, um, I have been involved in uh, the business continuity profession now for uh, 20 years. I just marked my 20th anniversary. Um, I got into business continuity planning as a recruiter. Um, Before I graduated University of Wisconsin-Madison, I started working at a small recruiting 
um, company and moved to California shortly after graduating, getting my degree and pursuing a recruiting degree, uh, recruiting job in California. When I came on board, it was back in 1998 when I made the move to California. And at that time, the company that I worked with, they just signed a very large retainer contract with Comdisco. Um, of course, many of you back 20 years plus experience like myself remember Comdisco. And yep. <laughs> um, at that point, yeah, at that point, we were, um, I thought I was going to be placing network consultants, um, network engineers. Um, but as it turned out, because of Y2K planning, we started placing all of these business continuity professionals, managing consultants, senior consultants. And I was just at awe. Um, I was so captivated by how passionate um, the professionals were within the industry. Certainly much more interesting to talk to, to, to a business continuity professional versus a network engineer. And I was just sucked right into the industry. And shortly thereafter, I started BC Management um, in March of 2000. And I started uh, BC Management to be focused within the business continuity profession. I found that um, being a recruiter in a large company, it, I was losing that focus. Um, so very happy with that decision and uh, managed BC Management for about 18 years. Um, back in June of 2017, I was approached by Firestorm. Um, they were wanting to know if I was interested in, in becoming a part of their team and, and you know, joining the Firestorm team and selling off BC Management to Firestorm. Um, that transaction was complete in December 2017, January 2018. And now under the Firestorm umbrella, um, I'm managing the people solutions, but also managing program analytics. Um, program analytics, we started under BC Management collecting data back in 2001, um, started with compensations assessments, but it grew very quickly and evolved to look at where the program is positioned within the organization, dedicated budget, dedicated personnel, how events impact organizations. And that um, one study has now grown into seven different studies. So under the Firestorm umbrella, I'm involved in still the people solutions, um, direct hire contract to hire contract, as well as program analytics and furthering the, the, the data research that we have in front of us. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about today, because um, that was what your presentation was about at the CRT conference. And there's a lot of some interesting information that uh, you provided, and I can't wait for some of these listeners to hear some of this. Um, so why don't we get started? And well, first of all, I just want to say it's very interesting how different people get involved uh, with this industry. You know. Uh, you started in recruiting, which is, is the first time I've heard that, you know, actually mm-hmm. uh, getting into this industry. But I always find that so many different people um, these days, you know, it's starting to change, thank, thank goodness. But, you know, this uh, business continuity was never actually a first choice career move. Everybody kind of fell into it somehow. So true. So, so true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's very interesting to see how you fell into it. Or how it sucked mm-hmm. you in. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so let's get started. Um, with your presentation, the, the first part was the evolution of resiliency. And I thought this was rather interesting how um, you described the industry has been changing from, from your viewpoint over 18 years. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Like what, what, is, what do you mean by the evolution of resiliency? Sure, of course. Well, I remember going to my first DRJ conference um, back in 1998, um, the infamous Hurricane Floyd conference. And at that point, 
I remember just being at awe because there was quite a bit of debate and sometimes even a heated debate just on the term of disaster recovery, business continuity. And looking back, when I first got in the industry in 98, it was very DR-focused. It was very IT-centric. And a lot of careers capped out at a director of data center, disaster recovery planning, resiliency wasn't really termed, that was disaster recovery, but, you know, director of data center, disaster recovery planning, um, VP of disaster recovery, and there has been certainly an evolution to business continuity and or resiliency. There's also crisis management. So the terminology has changed quite a bit, but it's very important to note that the, the evolution of the industry has been gravitated from being very IT-centric to being more enterprise-driven. So, of course, IT is still a very large component of of the business coaching program, Um, so is cyber resiliency, but it's really being driven by the overall enterprise and making sure that the program is very highly integrated across all the different business functions, Um, really increasing the executive visibility, the oversight is certainly there. Um, I'm seeing quite a bit more in our data points to it, quite a bit of convergence with the risk management um, as well as crisis management. Um, looking back at the positions we've worked on in the past, there are quite a few um, crisis management-focused positions, not business continuity, but really just 100% focused on managing any given crisis at any given time. So a lot of the large um, private organizations are looking to um, also have someone dedicated just to crisis management. So there's been a lot of changes in in the last couple of years. And I mean, again, the terminology, you know, you're doing quite a bit of the same thing, but the terminology has changed from the disaster recovery to business continuity, resiliency. And I think right now we're at that turning point where, you know, what's going to be the next term or how, how, is, the, how is the profession going to continue to change and evolve? We're getting individuals coming into this industry, just like you said, not just from IT. Now people are getting into the industry from finance, from risk management, from um, even from government sectors, um, firefighters. So people are bringing in fresh perspectives and new ideas um, on how to really approach um, business continuity or resiliency planning. It's, it's quite interesting to watch and, and see how it evolves. Well, you, you mentioned uh, it evolved, and I guess this is the best place to, to ask if you're familiar with the the new uh, term that seems to be going around or, or being presented uh, in some areas, the adaptive movement. Are you familiar with that or do you have anything you want, want to mention on that? Because they, just like disaster recovery to business continuity terms to resilience, there's now this adaptive, you know, a new way of changing. Do you have any comments on that? You know, I think it's, I think it's fabulous. I've, I've, I know the two gentlemen who, um, who started that uh, the theory and, mm-hmm. and started the, the terminology and I think they're definitely bringing a fresh approach and, and making people think about um, the industry and how we're approaching business country planning. I think it's exciting to watch and it's still, it's still transforming in itself but yeah, I've, mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with that term and, and I have a great deal of respect for both those individuals too. Yes, I, I've actually spoken to them twice and had them on the show. That's why, as you were talking about change, I thought, oh, this this is the opportunity to mm-hmm. ask if you're aware of it, you know, David and Mark. Um, uh, and I've got their book, and I'm 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 quite happy to keep seeing that the industry is growing because you know the only constant is change. Right? So, true. Well, and in fact, Mark, he's the, actually um, one of our. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can finish. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, um, actually, Mark is one of our um, thought leaders on our International Benchmarking Advisory Board. 
He's been on our board now for a couple of years. So, oh. yeah, just a really, really good guy. Oh, wonderful. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> um, with the uh, you, you mentioned all these different areas like finance, crisis management, incident response. Do, in your opinion, from what you've seen, do you think these areas, you know, they kind of existed on, on their own in isolation before, or they have expanded? Either they've expanded to understand how they relate to business continuity, or do you think business continuity has expanded to understand how these other disciplines play a part? From from what you've seen. <laughs> I think it's more for business continuity expanding, but also because because it's becoming more IT-centric to enterprise-driven. Um, the companies are now looking at the entire enterprise, not just recovering the data, excuse me, and not just recovering the networks or the IT functions. But I think, you know, being that's more enterprise-driven, um, the business continuity program, the business continuity excuse me, the business continuity professional is being tasked with understanding the intricacies across the entire organization and not just the IT side, but, but everything as a whole and how it impacts the organization's ability to be up and running. What happens if, um, you know, one system, not just one system down, is down, but one function you can't have ac- mm-hmm. access to within the organization. So I think it's really just being the enterprise-driven program that, that, ha- that it's really evolved to become. Mm-hmm. Well, the, today's world, there's so many dependencies and interdependencies. You know, when one thing goes true. down, it doesn't just impact one thing anymore. It was so much true. bigger than so that. True. Mm-hmm. So, from what you've seen and, and, and the findings from your last, uh, you know, uh, analytic uh, assessment here, where are you seeing the business continuity or the program residing, and who's kind of in charge of it now? Because it's it's changed over the years too. It has. So um, it's interesting you're asking because I'm just writing a, an article for um, an insurance-related uh, publication right now and just on that very topic on how the industry has evolved. And what we're seeing with our data is that um, since two, that between 2009 and 2017, there's been a heavy shift from IT as the, re, as the department, the department owner, to risk management. So the data from 2009 indicates that 27% of the respondents had the business country repro- program report into IT, and that dropped from 27% to 18% in 2017. On the flip side, risk management went from 11% as a, as a department that owned the program, 11% in 2009 to 21% in 2017. That's a huge shift. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other department owners tend to be pretty consistent, but those two were, were very apparent and, and we've been watching the trending, you know, like I said, since 2009. And that kind of goes along with your initial comments about the, you know, the expanded focus. It's not just IT centric anymore. So it would make sense that it would kind of move to some other area. Mm-hmm. Very true. So who, who do you see with the responsibility of being in charge, like the sponsor now? Has that changed as well with the change in um, you know, from IT to risk management, has the sponsor changed as well? You know, it has. It has. But it's interesting because, so look at the, the chief risk officer, by the way. Um, so back in 2009, only 3% of the respondents in 2009 had the program, um, have the, the chief risk officer was the sponsor of the program. And that increased to 11% in 2017. So certainly there was an increase there. But... However, when we look at the IT um, CIO or CTO as a program sponsor, that went from only 19%, well, significant, 19% in 2009, and it only dropped to 16% in 2017. 
So what we're finding, and I see the same thing in my clients when I speak with my clients, they may have the program reporting into risk management, but they still have the CIO or CTO, um, you know, perhaps still be the sponsor of the program as well. Um, As far as any other shifts, we've seen a slight increase to um, the chief operating officer, um, and um, the CEOs remained pretty consistent of about 8 to 7%. So th- there is that shift of the CRO from 3% to 11%, but the shift away from the CIO, CTO, hasn't been as, um, uh, you know, it, it's not the same as the shift for, with the CRO increasing. So that, that is, but I do see that with our clients too. From, from your own experiences, from what you've seen, do, does that cause any kind of a conflict? Just, just out of curiosity, if you know, risk management is kind of the doer, so to speak, but the sponsor is still, you know, on the IT side. Is there any kind of, from what you're aware of, uh, any kind of conflict with that? You know, it's, it, I don't hear it from my clients, um, but I can tell you that, I, and I always tell any of my clients when they ask me where they should position the program or where other companies are positioning the program off of our data research, I always tell them at the end of the day, it's really important and imperative to make sure that you have the program position where it's going to make most sense for your organization. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases, even though the, the program is, quote-unquote, reporting to the Department of Risk Management, the CIO, CTO, you know, that's the individual who's perhaps more engaged just because the IT mm-hmm. function is so large. Um, I mean, that's that's the conclusion I walk away from, but or walk away with. But mm-hmm. um, it's it's still at the end of the day, companies need to make sure they position the program where it makes most sense for them because it's it's how they view risk, how they approach risk, um, and making sure that they have that high visibility at the executive level that they're getting that sponsorship, they're getting that buy-in. So that at the end of the day, that is the most important. But yeah, like I mentioned, the the data sure it it really is interesting to watch, and it surely, mm-hmm. certainly speaks to the enterprise versus IT centric. And really, you know, not every organization has you know every C level there is. Some some have to wear true. more than one hat too. So mm-hmm. so true. And on that note, we're going to take our first break. We're talking with Cheyenne Marling about what some of the most successful programs are doing right now, and we'll be right back. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. 
Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Is email an important part of your business? It is for us. That's why Voice America partners with MailJet. MailJet lets us create impactful newsletters and deliver them right to the inbox fast. Microsoft, MIT, and Avis trust MailJet for their emailing, and so should you. Go to MailJet.com and use the promo code VOICEAMERICA to start emailing for free today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Cheyenne Marling about what the most successful programs are doing and some of the uh, amazing analytics and findings that uh, Cheyenne has found over the years. And um, this was also a presentation that Cheyenne gave at the CRT conference in Toronto in May. So Cheyenne, in our first segment, we talked about you know what uh, the evolution of resiliency and how the program has changed. In this segment, um, I'm wondering what kind of disciplines should be uh, involved or managed, you know, within the or as part of the business continuity management program. You know, good question because back in the day, it was it was exclusively just business continuity or disaster recovery, and it's interesting how the data, the studies have that we've been collecting have just evolved. Um, because of what we hear from our clients. But I think everyone agrees that they're doing much, much more than just business continuity or disaster recovery or resiliency planning. Um, our data shows that um, 75% of the respondents are doing some type of crisis management, be it crisis communications, incident response, media crisis management. That is a big component of today's programs, regardless if you're public or private sector. It's a big component. Um, we see risk. As a very another big component, 49% of all study respondents indicated they have risk, some function of risk, be it um, third-party risk, um, which, by the way, grew 12% between 2014 to 2017. And that's a huge jump up. Um, also looking wow. at operational risk management, enterprise risk management, governance risk compliance. Um, as far as other components, you have pandemic planning, you have emergency preparedness, um, you have disaster recovery, of course. Um, there's also the supplier resiliency, which, you, which you've seen a huge growth in as well, and compliance. Um, in addition to, um, let's see, I think I already mentioned pandemic planning. I'm just going through my list here. Um, I, physical security is another big component. Um, also looking at information security, audits. Um, yeah, there's quite a bit involved, and and I think much much more than just um, business country. I know I forgot cyber resiliency as well. That's another big one that we're watching the growth um, and how it, how it evolves and incorporates itself within business country planning. So quite a bit um, is involved: the executive protection, succession planning, asset protection. So 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 many disciplines. 
that are included within the program. Well, I've I've always found that I found uh, if anyone could see the slide that uh, Cheyenne presented, it's it starts off with one circle and then it just becomes this whole screen of a bunch of polka dots with different areas, <laughs> you know, that are involved with the program. And there there are some very interesting things in here, like occupational health and safety, which I've always felt is a part of the program or should be you know linked to the program somehow. Um, because I used to have a health and safety designation myself, and we would once a month have to do site inspections. You know, as part of, you know, the workplace. Uh, I forgot the act name, the the law, but uh, we had to do these um, inspections. Well, in the inspections, we helped identify some of the risks. You know, all these cords plugged into one wall, you know, or a roll of printer paper that isn't secured properly, that if it rolled, hurts a person or destroys a piece of equipment. So, you know, if that happens, it triggers BCM stuff. So it's really interesting that people are starting to uh, understand that, that, you know, business continuity means your entire business, just not one little piece of it. It is, you know, your, your business makes up, you know, 20 different things. You know, that's what business continuity has to be involved with. Exactly. So are, are there any um, that in that area that stand out for you as a surprise? I know you mentioned um, the, the increase in risk, but some that you thought, you know, I never, never thought that would have been a part of this. You know, we've seen the biggest increase with um, the third-party risk going up 12%, and then um, GRC um, governance risk and compliance increased by 5% between 2014 and 2017. I think, if anything, um, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing this with our clients all the time. Um, it, it depends really on the industry that you're in, too, and what's going to be incorporated within your program. Most companies have a combination of five different ki- five different disciplines within their program. Um, so it, it really differs, you know, based on the industry that you're in, based on the size, based on the maturity of your program, and, and what's really being incorporated, with, you know, and what you're managing within your program. Any any predictions for something that, you know, out of all the, you know, quite comprehensive responses you received to this, Anything that in your mind from what you've seen that hasn't really made an impact yet? Or, you know, how, I wonder why, you know, XYZ is not in here yet. Anything you know, it's interesting. I, I, I can't say specifically one particular that's not involved. Um, I mean, there's, we, we have about 22 different disciplines people can choose from when they take the study. And we keep on adding new ones all the time as we hear mm-hmm. about them more and more. But as a prediction, I think supplier resiliency... Um, that third-party risk management, that you know, GRC crisis communications or media crisis management, cyber resiliency. I think those are certainly ones to to watch um, watch over. But I do have another thought, and it just occurred to me, um, just because my company mm-hmm. does so much with active shooters, active shooter mm-hmm. trainings, um, that could be another piece. And and I hate to say that. Um, but but it could be because you're not just seeing it at schools. It's I you know it's you're also seeing it at companies. Um, mm-hmm. So perhaps that's something where you're looking at some type of protection, um, site security assessments or something where it's protecting protecting against some type of workplace violence. So uh, I, I guess that would kind of maybe fall on part of it fall under um, facility security. You know, how, stopping people from getting in to. Mm-hmm for that to happen but then at the same time you know active shooter isn't really just about 
you know, uh, uh, site security, you know, as sad as, you know, a, a topic that is to have to uh, approach, but still, you know, it, it could fall under something like that or some sort of a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Very true. I, I wonder, just out of curiosity, I wonder how uh, BCM uh, professionals, uh, regardless of where they're located, would feel about, you know, having, having to learn how to protect themselves and others uh, against an active shooter. You know, I know it's one thing to talk about it, but at the same time, it might call into play activities that people may not normally have to do, you know, be having armed guards in their building or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of yeah. a, a it's, it's a tough one. But, uh, you know, un- unfortunately, and with what's happening, as you said, you know, uh, in this world, you know, might have to come into play and might have to be something we have to face. Very true, and the job, the job of the professionals in this industry are to think about things that could happen, and the sad thing is it's already happening, so it's, it's one yeah. of those things where, yeah, you have to kind of plan for the unexpected and think about think outside the box. Yes, that's true, definitely. You know, that's how we identify our risks, right? <laughs> you know, one of the ways, mm-hmm. anyways, think outside of the box. What can we do, you know, if this bizarre thing happens, so. Okay, so let's move on to, you know, program maturity. What what's meant by program maturity? So part of our study is is we give um, individuals the opportunity to self rate their program and um, and then just in the last year, so that's always been an option. We like to try to see and try to assess. Okay, what are what do the most mature programs? Even if, even if it's a self rating, what are they doing differently to put them at that self rating? Um, mm-hmm. And then within the last year, we did incorporate logic within the studies where someone can go through and take the study. And at the very end, they get um, a maturity score. And we, you know, of course, cross-reference that score to, to what, how they self-rated their program. And we also take that score and help our companies in um, benchmarking their program to their peers so they can see how their rating compares to their peers within, within their same industry group um, and, and looking to see maybe perhaps how they can elevate and increase their um, program maturity score in the future when taking our studies. Did you find overall that people were accurate with how they self-assessed themselves or were they kind of overinflating a little bit? Um, usually it's a little bit, I think people feel a little bit more confident about their program where they may give perhaps a little bit of a higher rating. Um but there's so many aspects that we have involved in the scoring and the back end of the logic. So, for example, I spoke to one gentleman today, and he scored himself at at um, a four level out of five, but he was only he was only six points off of being at the four level when I spoke to him on the phone and went through the benchmarking of his program. So I did point out to him some key things that he could use to help elevate the program and where he may have missed, you know, in getting that quote unquote four level. Um, but in many cases, I do find that people are a little bit their program is a little bit less mature than where they think it is because there's so many different variables within the scoring logic that we use. Would uh, would someone's score level differ based on the number of um, disciplines that are within their program? You know, we mentioned health and safety and, you know, physical site assessments and risk and all those other different areas uh, previously. You know, does that impact their score overall you know you may they may not actually, have all, no, it, uh, yeah actually ahead. no it doesn't so we there are some questions in the studies that have no score attributed to them whatsoever um so for example even where the program's positioned as far as the program um, department owner 
We don't attribute to score to that because it can change so many different ways between different industries. We do, however, put a score in place depending on how, what level of separation um, the program sponsor is from executive management. So if the program sponsor is two or three levels below executive management, they're going to get a lower score than someone who has the program um, sponsor from zero or one level um, mm-hmm. uh, level of separation from executive management. We also give scoring with how often they're doing BIAs, how often are they exercising their program, you know, critical business functions, critical IT functions, critical third parties. Um, so we really take a look at the scoring on what what's really going to define and make their program more mature versus, you know, there are certain variables across the, the industry that you, you really can't put a score on because, you know, every company is a bit different in, in, mm-hmm. in, where, in, in who the department owner is. Or, um, so we definitely take that in consideration when you build on the logic. So what defines, you know, program maturity? You know, good question. So I break it down to three points. I mean, first and foremost, a company has to really establish a solid foundation for their organization. Um, and when I say solid founda- foundation, really have that executive commitment, um, making sure that the program aligns with corporate culture, which a lot of companies, unfortunately, really overlook that very key, important piece. You can't build one program for one financial institution and try to copy that same program with another financial institution. So the corporate mm-hmm. culture is really about establishing that very solid foundation, um, think, you know, thinking of a pyramid, right? Um, mm-hmm. Making sure that the, there's very high visible reporting structures. So regardless of where your program is reporting to, the department or the program sponsor, it needs to. you need to ensure that that is visible um, across the organization. You have that um, executive-driven support uh, with those reporting structures. Um, and, and also make sure that the companies are hiring top talent. Um, we also scored our companies to make sure that they were hiring individuals at management level that are experienced in business continuity. Um, they do bring those leadership skills to, um, to the program. And then lastly, for our Salah Foundation, making sure that the company is very um, integrated um, across all the different business functions. Um, Additionally, the company from there, building validation, make, making sure that you are assessing for potential risks, you're looking to improve the program, um, identify program weaknesses, as well as make sure that you're striving for, for the continuous improvement. You're really measuring the effectiveness of your program. You're really measuring the program maturity and revisiting that, um, not just assuming, but you're also, you know, you're really closely assessing where, how you score um, with the effectiveness of your program. You know, and over time, you know, your hopefully, you know, your program changes, so your scores hopefully will eventually go up. And you know, as you say, with integration, you know, with all those twenty-two different areas that you've identified so far, if you've only got ten right now, over time, that ten could become now we've got thirteen components, now we've got fifteen components. So it's going to change, you know, over time. And you know, if you're not integrated, you you and your company is changing and growing, but your program's not you're not really going to have the same level of maturity. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, I just lost my slide, my place now. So uh, executive commitment, that's it. That's where I wanted to go. Um, you, you had a, a couple of comments about the level of executive buy-in. I'm curious to know, is you, we, we already talked about you know, having the sponsor. What's your definition of buy-in? Because sometimes the person who's the sponsor, and, and I've seen it, isn't necessary doesn't necessarily have you know a lot of buy-in for what you're doing they just know they're stuck with this how, how do yeah. you 
what are your, what are your thoughts on that? So getting the buy-in, you, again, make, making sure that you get the executive commitment, that the, the stakeholders, the, the executives are, are very intertwined within the program, um, you know, it, it starts really at the grassroots. I mean, making sure that there's a mission, a vision, policy statements incorporated um, as a part, and they're adopted for the BCM program. Um, interestingly, if we found the most mature programs, 52% have a mission statement, 37% have a vision, 85 have policy statements, where the immature programs, you know, 20, only 24 have a mission statement, only 20% have a vision for BCM, and 31% have policy. So there's certainly that differentiating factor there. Um, also looking to see how often program updates are shared with the board of directors um, on an annual basis. You know, 92% of mature programs are sharing program updates with their board um, on an annual basis or more frequently um, compared to only 65% for immature programs. Um, and then also looking at making sure that the stakeholders are identified, validated, and involved. Um, this is one area that we can improve upon regardless of the maturity of the programs because here, you know, according to our data, 37% of the mature programs have stakeholders identified, validated, and involved, only 9% of immature programs. So that's definitely a key area that I think we should hone in on and really make sure we focus on. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, the level of executive buy-in for um, for programs, the very mature, they scored about, you know, 31% really feel that they have that strong executive buy-in just for those, you know, reasons I just pointed out, um, mm-hmm. where the very immature programs only, you know, just under 4%. So those are some of the areas we look at in really again, defining it, and someone who's looking to elevate their program, these are areas where they can really try to improve upon. Improve upon. So a big, a big thing is, um, you know, to, to narrow it down into one word, is a lot of communication, upwards mm-hmm. and downwards and, and lateral, right? As, as to, for executives to really get the buy-in, I, I, my understanding is, you know, we have to be able to show the value. You know, if we're not really showing a value, well, and, you know, executives may just, Ugh, you're an expense and go away, don't bug me type thing. Mm-hmm. So true. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've come to the end of our second break, and we'll be, we're talking with Cheyenne Marling, and we'll be right back to talking about what makes successful programs, you know, um, what, sorry, now I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> Must be the thunder mm-hmm. outside what the most successful programs are doing right. And we're talking with Cheyenne Marlin, and we'll be right back. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 
888-346-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Is email an important part of your business? It is for us. That's why Voice America partners with MailJet. MailJet lets us create impactful newsletters and deliver them right to the inbox fast. Microsoft, MIT, and Avis trust MailJet for their emailing, and so should you. Go to MailJet.com and use the promo code VOICEAMERICA to start emailing for free today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Once again, we're talking with Cheyenne Marling about what uh, the most successful programs are doing. And... um, for this, uh, to start off our last segment, Cheyenne, I'm wondering, you know, um, program weaknesses. Like, how, how, what can we do to, to assess, you know, um, the weaknesses of programs and what can we do to make them stronger? Sure, of course. So, um, obviously, once a company has that solid foundation for um, their program, it's really important to assess and, and, and test what you have in place, right? So, assessing the program, we think of that as, you know, your business impact assessment, your risk assessments, making sure that you're conducting, I mean, obviously most companies conduct exercises or testing of their plans, but making sure that they conduct varied exercises, varied tests, um, auditing the program. It's an interesting to see how so many companies will overlook the, the internal or external audit and making sure that you're really, once you find, once you identify some potential weaknesses, making sure that you really leverage that finding to really you know, continuing to improve your program. Um, I also find a lot of companies will tend to overlook um, getting, um, making sure that they are really intertwined with external entities like public, firefighting, police, what have you, because if it comes down to a disaster, a major event that's impacting a very large regional area, you need to make sure that you have those relationships in place. And, and, and I know a lot of companies will try to test that, test those relationships um, as they're exercising their plans as well. Well, the, the more varied uh, exercise with the different components helps you find more more weaknesses, right? Very true. Very true. In fact, every year we add a different type of kind of exercise scenario. So I know in our studies we've added the active shooter exercises. We have, you know, crisis management, tabletop. But what's interesting is we do see that companies, um, they tend not to do 
um, a, as many live tests as they would like or surprise unannounced. Obviously, those are probably the most unpopular when you're you know, trying to get through mm-hmm. a typical business day. Um, but you definitely need to do a lot more than just your basic walkthrough or telephone cascade or, or um, a tabletop exercise. So you really have to try to mix it up to really, really test the, you know, your, your program to, to the extent where you can find those potential vulnerabilities. Yeah, if you do the same thing over and over again, you're going to get the same results over and over again. You're never going to be moving forward. You've got to, you know, challenge yourself. So true, so true. Yeah. So um, what are some other ways, you know, that maybe people can do, you know, to enhance their programs? I know you made mention of some lessons learned and certifications. You know, what can you expand on those points? So as far as certifications um, for continuous improvement, we see so many um, certifications out there to certify your program. Um, I think it's definitely something that's um, up and coming where, you know, finally I believe we're we're all kind of standing behind, um, you know, two or three different certifications, right? But um, making sure that you are using the certification or the standards or even the methodology behind it to make sure that you are, you are establishing those metrics to really, you know, measure the effectiveness of your program and potentially even certifying, you know, an aspect of your program. Um, that goes a long way. When you're looking at being globally competitive, um, you know, a lot of companies want to see that or they want to know that you're going in, in that direction. I've, I, in fact, I spoke to one of our clients who they wanted to know what um, they were looking at globally doing more work in Singapore and they wanted to know, you know, perhaps what were some of the um, uh, standards in, in Singapore that their clients, their competitors had to be certified against to, to win that business. So it is becoming a, a key thing where, you, you know, you're not only assessing your your program, but you're making sure that you're taking that step to be, you know, to really elevate the effectiveness, and then you're certifying, you're getting that certification to back it up, and, you know, companies are using that as a differentiating factor to, to win over business or to win clients or to win um, or to be perceived as being globally compliant um, within their peer group, too. Uh, I'm not. I'm not meaning to put you on the spot. Do you th- feel there's any one certification better than the other, or or value in any of them or all of them? You know, I see a lot of companies um, with the ISO two two three zero one, obviously, and then there's ISO two seven zero zero one information security focused. Um, the ISO certifications are definitely. Um, very, very um, recognized within the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple others, and um, gosh, I wish I had a slide in front of me. I apologize, but I, I know I just looked at this for another organization, and I want to say it's FFIC. Um, again, it really comes down to your, your um, industry that you're in as well, because obviously, if you're healthcare, you have HIPAA. Um, if you know, there's also OSHA. So there's uh, depending on the the industry that you're in, that's certainly going to drive this the standard that you're going to want to look to become certified in. Okay, good. I, 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 I didn't really want to put you on the spot, but I was just kind of curious <laughs> to okay. know where, because you know, somebody's going to say, oh, mine's better than this one, but I always find value in, you know, I, I, there isn't one that I promote myself over any others because I find value, <clears throat> excuse me, losing my voice, I find mm-hmm. value in all of them. You know, every standard has something good, and as you brought it up, you know, depending on the industry you're in, that one may um, apply to what you do more than another. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Um, you made some comments at CRT about you know understanding some lessons learned. Can you over over the years? You know, can you expand on that a little bit? You know, how we can leverage that. So you know, I think it's really important to to overall, as far as lessons learned within the industry, making sure that as professionals, we are continuing to evolve with the profession. You need to understand what makes sense for your organization. And as professionals, we we absolutely cannot be complacent. If you're complacent, you're going to be, you could find yourself without the program sponsor that you thought you had, right? So you need Mm -hmm. to, as professionals, you need to, to really make sure that you are establishing that really good foundation of executive support and making sure that you're keeping them engaged in the program. Um, always think about the company culture and, and how that impacts the organization. And cultures can change very slowly over time or they can change very quickly with an acquisition or merger. So always making sure that you're, that the program is aligned with the company culture that's at hand. Um, I think it's really important as professionals to think outside of the norm, think outside of the box. I mean, business continuity is not black and white. There's a lot of gray involved. And I always tell people in the industry to, to make sure that they're, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. You have to champion the program. And companies want individuals to be a champion. If you're a champion within the industry, if you're giving public speaking, if you're writing white papers, if you're serving in a, in a board capacity within an association or some type of related um, um, organization within the industry, you're being a leader within the industry and companies would expect you to be a leader within their organization for their program. So being a champion, being passionate about what you're doing, what you do within the organization makes a huge impact because if you're just going about your day and planning and you're kind of, you know, not really excited about it, you're not going to get other people excited about it. You're certainly not going to get the executives excited about what you're doing. So the championship, the being passionate about what you're doing is so, so important. And I think it's important to understand that the industry is going to continue to evolve. So, you know, back when I got in the industry back in 1998 with the DRJ, infamous Hurricane Floyd, and everyone was vacating, and I think I was the second to last flight out of there, um, the term is disaster recovery. And, and resilient, then it's resilient business continuity and then resiliency. Um, and then, of course, the new terminology. So we have to take, we have to take in consideration that as the industry continues to evolve, you have to stay up on the trends and what's happening and what's keeping the executive attention and all those different disciplines that come in to the equation. And I think current methods are going to be continued to be challenged. And as professionals, I think we need to keep on considering how how the industry is changing and how each individual is making impact to the organization and, and how the program is being viewed and, and how is it going to be viewed in the future. So, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces here, and I think this industry is exciting. Um, I, I know you referenced in the very beginning of the call that a lot of people kind of fall into it, but it's interesting mm-hmm. you, you talk to them and... They, they have a lot of passion for the industry, and it's not just protecting the people or protecting the business, but you feel as if you're really making an impact to the organization, and they understand all the different intricacies within the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a recruiter in the industry and doing data analytics, um, I, think, I think it's exciting, exciting to watch it evolve and, and watch it become even more. Uh, I've got a couple of questions for you. Uh, one, because you were talking about passion, and you know, I, I love this. That's why I've been doing it for 21 years and continue to learn uh, about it. Uh, and I've run into this, and I've seen this happen. 
from what you've seen, do you have any advice for people who are passionate about this but haven't yet got the uh, attention of executives you know, or sponsors? You know, they're, they're less enthusiastic about it. But the person, you know, doing the role is very, you know, passionate about it. And any advice for those kind of people that you've seen over the years, you know, how they could turn it around to really grab the attention of executives so executives take notice? So it's always thinking about the message. Everyone always talks about the elevator speech, and I think it's really important to make sure that you have a couple different elevator speeches in your in your pocket in case you have that rare opportunity that you're riding the elevator with um, with an executive that you've been trying to get on the calendar with. Um, thinking about how you're personally making an impact. Think about those soft skills. I think every one of us can continue to improve upon what we do within just our day job, within our organization, but also as within the profession as a whole. So think about the soft skills. You know, are you presenting? Are you being a leader? And I, I think once you start assessing your own career and taking a look at the soft skills, that things naturally, you know, kind of come into play. Um, but having the elevator speeches, having, um, you know, understanding some of the political, um, you know, the political movement within the organization and how some of those relationships tie in and and perhaps sometimes some companies it, it is more of a ground up versus a you know up down so you know looking at how you can be strategic and try to create those opportunities and and again don't be complacent and and I always tell people don't get beat up if you have one defeat I mean you know mm-hmm. and don't 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 beat yourself up if you if you had a bad day it's not the end of the world it's it's, you know, we all have to be there, and heck, if we were all superstars, then no one's going to learn from, from, you know, how to improve upon what they did the last time. So I think not beating yourself up and just trying to move forward from there is, is so very important. And my other question is, based on all of the uh, assessments and analytics you've done over the years, and the different clients you've spoken to, and, you know, the conferences you, you've attended, and uh, people you've met there... Where do you see the program going, or or even where would you like to see the program going over, let's oh, say, over boy. the next five years? What are, what are you thinking might might actually be out there for us? I I see I see three different things. So um, I I think as an industry, I think and I, this scares a lot of people, but I think it's just the I think there is just going to be kind of a movement within the industry, but. Risk management is a big component. Um, you have crisis management. That's a very big component. You have the physical security is another big component. I think it's going to continue to evolve and continue to be an enterprise-driven program, but with each organization, it's a little bit different on, quote-unquote, who's the program sponsor or who's the the department that the program's reporting to. Um with change also, you know, comes, you know, when you're making that change, especially within an organization and perhaps merging two or three different departments, it can be very political. So I think it's going to be a slow evolution, but I think it's going to continue to happen where you have um, more convergence between not just one or two, but multiple disciplines because um, you're looking at, you know, companies are trying to maximize what they have with the people that they have. So trying to converge all of those different functions. And I think they're also looking at the global landscape, too. So a lot of my clients who have operations in Asia, they'll try to cover that 
Asia office from the corporate office in New York or New Jersey, and that causes causes issues too because in many cases they have someone in Asia who is not even really truly dedicated to business continuity or resiliency planning. They're they're really more um, it's a part time job. They're they're helping with the planning or helping with the testing or or helping with the plan updates. Um, so I think the global aspect is certainly going to be a, a shift moving forward because I hear from a lot of my clients that they don't have that quote-unquote dedicated staff um, for their other offices, especially if they have a large um, focus in Asia or EMEA or Latin America. Well, believe it or not, we have come to the end of our third segment. So I'd like to, Cheyenne, thank you very much for all your insight and from what you've seen and, you know, All the statistics you get, please keep that up because uh, it's offering everyone a lot of valued information. And I thank you for your time for attending here. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite, Alex. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. And to all of our listeners, uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, Again, if there's a topic that you want us to talk about, please feel free. Send me a note and I'll respond. And as a reminder, I will be at uh, DRJ in September, and I will be at the team's 25th anniversary in Manila. So once again, thanks everyone to listening, and thank you, Cheyenne, for giving uh, us your insights and things that you've been finding over the years. And in the meantime, everyone, stay prepared. for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.